You may open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 for the first verses of Scripture that we'll look at. We are studying knowing God. God has created us to know Him, and He saved us to know Him. We have seen those points previously in our study. If all we knew about God were the inherent attributes of Him, His infinity, His independence, His incomprehensibility, and so forth, His omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, immutability, eternal nature, He deserves all the glory, honor, praise, dominion, thanks, and blessing, and service that we could ever give Him. But thankfully, He went beyond those inherent attributes and declared Himself to us in creation, in providence, in conscience, and most of all, in the incarnation of His own Son, Jesus Christ. The attributes that we come to this morning, and I want you to understand this distinction and categorization of His attributes that we're using. The inherent ones are the ones intrinsic to His nature, part of being God. We do not have any of those And we will never have them. They are His and His alone. The declarative attributes were those ways in which He reveals and discovers and manifests and shows Himself to us so that we can know more of Him than just those conceptual things that we can't even really comprehend because they're beyond our finite comprehension. But now we come to what I've chosen to call, to make it easier for you, transferable attributes. Theologians have always called these the communicable, ordinarily, or the moral attributes of God. And we're calling them transferable because God, for His children, gives them parts of His divine nature. By giving us a new man in regeneration, by sanctification, which we are able to do certain things that God does. Of course, we will never do them to that degree, though when we're in heaven glorified, we'll do them much closer to God. But they are things that God does and things that we have and things that we know firsthand. So that when we read about them in the Bible that God has them and we read that they're perfect, we can relate because we've never met, never found, never measured the perfect measure of these different attributes that can be and are transferred to us. So we call them transferable attributes because they're attributes God gives to His children for them to be more like Him. So that we in the family of God are children that please our Father. Each category of attributes takes us closer to God. That first category of those inherent in His nature, the things that make God God, we're not God, so there's this gulf still between us. We know of them, and it elicits praise and worship from us, but it doesn't make us more comfortable with Him. It just makes us more knowledgeable of Him. Then the things He declares adds more detail to that when we see what he did in creation and providence and his judgments and his legislation and his prophecies and the different things that we've looked at. We get to see him more closely, but he is still at a distance. However, when we come to these transferable attributes, things that we understand and need, things that we show and expect from others, and God shows them to us, we can get our hands, the the hands of our mind, around God better this way because He's closer to us. And as we progress through these attributes, we're going to get yet closer in the relational attributes of how He actually relates to us. But these are things, these attributes called transferable attributes are traits or characteristics of God that He communicates 
to his creatures. So you're familiar with them. But we've never seen them in perfection like we get from him at all times and always and in all situations and circumstances. So this is getting us closer to the Lord as we come into this third category. And I've said this already this morning, but in Genesis 1 last night, which you read, I hope that you saw God is obviously omnipotent, meaning all power, because he could create out of nothing by his mere spoken word. And so you could see that the earth that was in, under darkness and without form and it was void of anything. What an ugly place this earth was until God said, you know, then he began with light and then he separated seas from land and he, that dry land brought forth things. Then the seas brought forth things. So we have fish and birds and creatures and then we have a man and a woman and he named them Adam and, and we see all that. We see his omnipotence in making it. We see his creativity, his glory, his handiwork in what he made. Now he told us to see those things. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. When we see the sun, the moon, the stars, and the birds that fly in the heavens, we see how handy God is by his creation. And he, and he tells us that's as far as it extends. But as we read Genesis 1, we found another word there. Seven times there. Good. And that is beyond omnipotence. Distant, powerful God. It's beyond creation. He sure is creative in making a sun and a moon and setting the earth on a 23 and a third degree axis so that we get seasons if we're not at the equator. Oh, yes. But he shows us that he's good. And he went through the six days of creation to show us what he made on each day of creation. And he said it was good. And we were supposed to look at it and see his goodness. And I hope you did. And I've already mentioned this in my introduction because I want it to be a solid foundation for you understanding how we progress even in the first chapter of the Bible from a God that is merely omnipotent. From a God that is merely omnipotent and a creator to a God that is omnipotent and my creator, but he is good. And he is good, 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 and very good. And I still left out a good because I wanted you to think about how good he is. I cannot take the time to go through Genesis 1. You were supposed to do that last evening. My wife and I did that last evening. I enjoyed it very much because there is so much goodness there in each one of those days of creation. And don't you think that because you can turn a switch and light comes on in a dark room that man has made light. God made light from nothing. We just reform it and repackage it a little bit. When you write with a pencil, you can teach your children that man may have made the pencil, but the tree and the lead that make the pencil, God made. And Thomas Edison or Tesla or anyone else that played around with electricity was only redirecting and repackaging what God had already made, and it was something called light, and we like it. There's a darkness that can be felt, and Egypt did not like it. They like the light, and children like a night light, which is kind of a contradiction in terms, but we know exactly what it is. It's a light for the night because it's scary at night 
when it's dark and there could be monsters sneaking into the room. And so we have little night lights that scare them all away. But light is good. And what is your favorite fruit? And what is your second favorite fruit and your third favorite fruit? Do you eat the seeds with the fruit or do you spit out the seeds? Sherry and I had so much pleasure last night. Strawberries and cherries are about the same size. But one we spit the seed out and the other we consume the seed. And the Lord just made all kinds of fruit and all that stuff around the seeds is to feed the seed, but we eat it instead and spit the seed out. Right. And it's wonderful. Right. Amen. Do you like banana seeds? Okay. And you eat them. And we just go on and on with all that the Lord has given us. That green watermelon with the red insides and the black seeds. Sometimes they make it black with white seeds. That's only man repackaging what God made. He is good, and His goodness is everywhere. Male and female are different. Very different. And that's a whole study in itself. I praise the Lord for His goodness. And so I, I want you to see how kind He is. Because this is what we mean by the word good. I am not starting with holy. We will get to holy in its proper place. And there is a sense that God is good and that He is holy and is free from evil or bad. But we're using the word good in the sense of him being benevolent, him being kind, him being gracious and generous, him blessing us and showing us favor. And the Bible is filled with it from one end to the other, especially his children. And we are his children. So I want you to see how we're getting closer to him as we progress through these attributes. When we look at the goodness of God, we could study it for weeks. We're going to study it for one assembly by God's grace. Because that's all the time and space we have to give to it right now. But it deserves this much time at least. And it could take much more because the pages of Scripture are filled with it. I hope just by showing you Genesis 1, you realize that chapter is full of the goodness of God. He could have made us automatons. He could have made us servants and slaves. He put us in a garden just to dress and to keep it, to enjoy all kinds of fruit off of every kind of tree and gave us intelligence to enjoy it and no clothes to cumber us. So the beauty of the female and the male form were visible from the beginning because it was very good. We corrupted things. And there's a bondage of corruption still on this planet that will be lifted in a day very soon when the Lord Jesus Christ delivers it and the whole universe into the glorious liberty of the children of God when we will enjoy it all because it's ours. And it's not this world's and it's not Mother Nature's. It's God and His inheritance to us, His children. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I want you to understand what we mean by transferable attributes. I want to just show you a few references, and I do not have time to preach on these as I have in years gone by, whereby the Bible tells us that as the children of God, we are born again. When we are born again, we are a child of God. And there is a nature in us that is like God's. It is not omnipotent, but it is good. It is not eternal. In both directions. But it is righteous. It is not infinite. But it's holy. Because we have those attributes given to us by God. The wicked have them not. We have them. The plowing of the wicked is sin. 
No matter what the wicked does, it's sin because it's done with a sinful heart and sinful motives. First Corinthians chapter 2, I start at verse 14 so that you can get the distinction between the natural man and the spiritual man. A man born once and a man born twice. A man with just a human nature and a man with a spiritual nature as a son of God. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. That would include the attributes of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The wicked not only are void of God's attributes, they can't even understand God God's attributes, nor do they care about God's attributes, because they're foolishness to them, while we delight in them, as Joel shared with us this morning. Verse 15, but he that is spiritual judgeth or discerneth in opposition to the 14th verse all things. Yet he himself is judged of no man. No one can, no one understands that we're the children of God. That's why this service is being ignored this morning for us to worship in quiet peace. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And there is one of those little hints in scriptures that we have the mind of Christ. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We have the spiritual discernment of Jesus Christ. And it's expanded upon our obedience and by the blessing of the Holy Spirit within us to know more and more of the things of God and to relate to them, to discern them, to appreciate them, and to love them. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I don't have time to elaborate on these points because we must get to the attribute of good. Right now I just want to explain what I mean by transferable and for you to appreciate the fact that you're born again. There's something inside you that partakes of the divine nature. Now you don't partake of all aspects of the divine nature because some of his attributes are his inherent intrinsic attributes that are him only. But there are some that you partake of and they can lead you to all godliness. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord. There's n- we are not hindered from seeing the glory of Jesus Christ under the New Testament like they were in the Old when everything was in shadows and types and done obscurely. Now as we do that, but we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image From glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. The Lord should be changing us and conforming us to be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we have certain attributes that make us like Him in character. This is why I'm calling them transferable attributes. And I want you to be excited about being born again. It's not just quoting John 3, 3, except a man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. It's to understand what we're actually given. And it's glorious and wonderful indeed. And by the power of the Spirit of God and by walking in the Spirit of God and living in the Spirit of God, we can progress from one stage of glory to another stage of glory to be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Look at Galatians chapter 6 and verse 15. I'm having to sift through a number of verses that I have here. We we cannot spend more than another minute or two. Galatians 6.15, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision. God doesn't care whether the foreskin of a man has been removed or not in standing before him, but a new creature does matter. And that new creature is being born again. 
That's the result of being created by God. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, which should just be the next page. Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, that is, those of us who are His children who have been born again, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. He gives us the ability, and He tells us how we which ones we ought to have, and He moves us toward them because we are His workmanship. He has done a great work in us. And so we have these attributes, and we can relate to them. We have first-hand experience with them, but we find out that God is infinitely above anything we've ever experienced, but we know them better. You don't know infinity or omnipotence at all, except as a concept off the pages of Scripture. You don't know creation at all because you can't create anything. All you understand about it is that it is declared in Scripture. But when it comes to goodness, you have had other children of God show you goodness. You have shown goodness. You know what goodness is. But God has it in a superlative degree. And so we've entered a third category of His attributes. And we have this nature. Look at chapter 4 in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. We have... So that we can be pleasing to Him, because these are things that are necessary to please God. You don't have to be omnipotent to please God. You don't have to be a creator to please God. But you have to be good to please God, and you have to be good in the sense that I'm telling you about being good, and I don't mean not being bad. I mean being kind, generous, gentle, and favorable, blessing others. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, that ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old lifestyle of the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. That's what you are by nature. You are corrupt. You're rotting. You're rotten. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Now you have heard me quote this verse dozens and dozens of times. Because you have a new nature in you that is a creation. It is not a modification. It is not you improving something. It is God creating something. And this thing that is created in you is created in righteousness and true holiness. And according to Colossians 3.10, which is the fraternal twin of Ephesians, it says it was created in the image of Him that created it. You have the image of God in you, created, so that you know these things. I'm done. Except I'll read you... No, see, I'm not done. Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, because I've got... I've, you've got to be able to see this in print. Not just hear my reading of it. Second Peter chapter 1. Oh, we must get to the attribute of good. Right now I'm just explaining to you what transferable means. And to be born again is one incredible creation of God. Do you know why the Bible says that for you to be born again is the same power, and to believe the gospel is the same power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead? Ephesians chapter 1 says that. It's a resurrection. It's a quickening. It's a regeneration. It's generating you for the second time, giving you God's nature instead of your parents' nature. It's incredible. You know, the best of us on our best days have this much goodness, but we know what it is. He's got it all. 
And we're going to know that because we love it when someone shows us a little goodness. Oh, yes, you do. But I want to tell you about a God that has it all and shows all kinds of goodness and great goodness and how great is His goodness as the Bible describes it. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord according, watch this, as His divine power Now he's done something with us, brethren, hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. What? That ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. By nature, we are corrupt, we are rotten. But by God's divine power, we have been born again, and everything has been given unto us that pertains to life and godliness. Omnipotence doesn't pertain to life and godliness. Creation doesn't pertain to life and godliness. But goodness, holiness, justice, mercy, forgiveness, those things pertain unto life and godliness, and they are necessary for us to live a godly life. And we're partakers of God in that respect. So that when we get to heaven, the holy God is going to have holy children. The good God is going to have good children. But the omnipotent creator is going to still be the omnipotent creator. And we will be the impotent creatures. Do you see the difference in the category so far? I don't want to be complicated or make this dry and boring. It's exciting to be able to break it down into pieces and realize I've just gone through the third door and I'm closer to the presence of God. And as I open this third door, I am met with the warmth and the embracing of His goodness. And it surrounds me and it comforts me because He is good. Genesis 1 doesn't start out with holiness. Genesis 1 starts out with His goodness. And I would not make a great argument on that point. Because God is holy. And everything that he ever does in goodness is wholly good. And I don't mean that W-H-O-L-L-Y. I mean that H-O-L-Y. And he never modifies his holiness for his goodness. Except in Christ Jesus, which is a pretty big modification. (laughs) The goal at all times in our study is to better learn the nature of God so that you might know him and trust him more. That is my goal. For these attributes of God, we have three things we want to accomplish. When we say God is good, we have three things we want to accomplish. Prove it from the Bible. Draw benefits that ought to affect us. And ask if we have any of that ourselves. Because I've called it a transferable attribute. We better have some. Or we can't lay claim to God being good toward us in any other way than he's good toward the birds in your backyard. Lord, help us. Okay, here we go. Let's turn to Acts chapter 14. God is good. You know, children sometimes have had a prayer, and I was taught at an early age never to pray that prayer, so it was never prayed in our household. And I thank parents that taught me never to pray with the vain repetitions of the heathen. But the little child's prayer actually has quite a bit of wisdom in it. God is great. Is that true? Yes, it is. God is good. Is that true? Yes, it is. Let us thank him for our food. Is that proper? Yes. 
Well, we want God is good. And by goodness, let me say it again for about the third or fourth time today, the goodness of God here is not the absence of bad. That would be his holiness. That would be his righteousness. The goodness of God here is his benevolent kindness and his generous blessings toward his creatures. His children see the most of it. Moral goodness or holiness we'll consider under that respective attribute. Now in Acts chapter 14, verse 17, we've been to this verse showing that God providentially has left a witness of himself in the world because it is a declarative attribute, God's providence. Remember Acts 14, 17, Paul is defending himself from being worshipped by the people of the city of Lyconia. Lystra and Lyconia, beginning at verse 8, it tells us that story. Here's the verse as he defends himself uh, and, and explains to them the nature of the true God, not the idols that they worshipped. Verse 16 says, Who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, even in those days, when he let the nations of the Gentiles be ignorant of him, he left not himself without witness. He left a witness in the world. In that he did good. In that he did good. God is good. Even to the wicked. God is good. Our God is good. And gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Now we looked at the second half of that verse and saw that God's witness was his providential care of providing harvest for farmers that put food on tables that caused men's hearts to be filled with food and gladness. And so that was a witness of something. And now we're to that something. If we look at the second half of the verse, it's just a declarative attribute. But what is it declaring? It's declaring what the first half of the verse tells us. God is good. Because look at what he gives us. What does a good meal do for you? When you set into one of your favorite dishes and you put that in your mouth and you chew and masticate and salivate around that food and, and let it roll around on your taste buds and go down your throat, it's wonderful. Where did it come from? Even the wicked enjoy meals. Because God is good. And he's left a witness of that in the whole earth. God is good. You saw it in Revel in Genesis chapter 1. You're seeing it here in Acts chapter 14. God is benevolently kind. He is generously full of blessings and favor. He delights in his creatures having pleasure. This is the God that we worship. He is good. And he's good in countless ways that we could never cover in this sermon. Look at Isaiah 28. Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah 28. And may the Lord bless the order that I've chosen by believing He's given me to put these attributes in a certain order. I would not make any argument about their order, but I'm doing it for the comfort of your souls that if perchance you or I as your accessory have ever helped you into a ditch that you will climb your way out of it. I hope you already have. With good conscience, I have preached to you about God. I don't have a problem with my conscience, but I worry about some of yours. 
Isaiah 28 and verse 21. For the Lord shall rise up as in Mount Perizim. He shall be wroth as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his strange work, and bring to pass his act, his strange act. Now these two places are where God wrecked vengeance on the enemies of Israel. And so the Lord is going to rise up just like he did in the days of wrecking vengeance on the enemies of Israel, and he's going to wreck some vengeance on the Israelites. But notice what it is said about this good God when he judges his people. It's his strange work. It's his strange act. This is God's choice of words. These are not the choices of the translators of the King James Bible, nor your pastor. This is what God wants you to know about him. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, saith the Lord. This is his strange work. Because his ordinary work is goodness. It's benevolence. Do you know what forces his hand to his strange work? Our wickedness. But praise be to his holy name. I know I shouldn't be getting ahead of myself with the second sermon today. But if you read Deuteronomy chapter 9, you know Moses' loving, tender, kind words to that nation and that church before he got to die and get away from them when he said, every every day that I've ever known you, you've been nothing but a bunch of sinful trouble. Did you read that passage or not? And yet those people were as secure as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by the oath that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and by the oath that he had made in the Lord Jesus Christ. So though they had provoked him, and he said, you remember it and don't forget how many times you've provoked me, they were safe. For two reasons, there was that great contrast. He had to judge the Canaanites for their great wickedness, and he was going to preserve his people who were at least as wicked or more wicked because of an oath he had made to their fathers. And we have that same oath because I want to remind you, we are the seed of Abraham. Amen. And second... We are the seed of Abraham's seed. We are the children of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, that strange work. You know that strange work in 1 Corinthians 11 is called damnation. And bring upon yourselves damnation. What is that damnation in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? It's the physical judgment of the Corinthians for abusing the Lord's Supper. But do you know what it says about that damnation? It's proof of their salvation because it was damnation in a practical way of being sick weakly and dying prematurely but it was proof that they wouldn't be condemned with the world but would be saved that is how good god is that is why it's called his strange work and his strange act how can a dreadful and terrible god be good i hear some fainting soul ask me and i tell you by being dreadful and terrible to everything bad and evil What kind of a God do you want? I want a God that's dreadful and terrible toward everything that is bad and evil and good toward me. But I hear the fainting soul say, but I'm bad. But in Christ you're not. So hold on to the second service and find out that you've always been viewed as being righteous in his eyes. The goodness of God stands and falls with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all in him. Run to Christ. And be saved. Every one of us is evil. 
Every one of us deserves the dreadful and terrible God to destroy us and torment us for eternity. But He's going to lavish us with the pleasures of heaven and His presence in the presence of a holy God for all of eternity because we are in Christ. You say, well, I don't know if I'm in Christ. Then run to Him by faith and believe on Him right now. Amen. Him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Do you know what it says? If you can run to Christ right now by faith and just believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God and your only hope. That is proof of salvation. Delight yourself in the goodness of God with me. Instead of worrying about him being a dreadful and terrible God, he's dreadful and terrible to the wicked. You ought to see what he's going to do to all your enemies. There are martyrs that died most patiently and cheerfully, singing and asking God to forgive their tormentors on their way out of this world. But when they arrived in the other world, under the altar of God, their common song is, and their common prayer request is, for God to avenge them of their enemies. And the Lord's answer is, just wait a little longer for you to get there, and then I'll do it. For your brethren to get there. That is Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Oh, we speak of good bosses, good fathers, good judges, and good rulers. When we say that a man is a good boss, a good judge, or a good ruler, or a good father, do we dilute his authority, or do we include his authority without dilution? We include his authority. We expect goodness to include fury against evil and wrong. And yet we say, He is a good boss. Do you know why you like him as a boss? Because he gives you a raise and he fires the sluggards in the department. And so you call him good. And yet when we we use that same illustration with God, you start quaking. You're not going to get fired if you do what's right. And if you don't do what's right, like Deuteronomy 9 describes... And everything you've ever done is wrong. He's still good because he's made an oath to our fathers. And to his son, Jesus Christ. Oh, the Bible is so full. Look, Psalm 86 and verse 5. Where do we start? Where do we end? And how many do we put in the middle? What a subject. Psalm 86, 5. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive. What kind of goodness is that? He's ready to forgive. You know, if you come to me and ask for forgiveness, you're going to work on me for a while. I'm just going to talk like I'm you. So in case you're thinking that I'm worse than you are, I'm just I'm pretending I'm you. If you come to me and ask for forgiveness, you're going to have to work for a while because I'm not quite as ready as this verse describes. I want to get a pound of flesh first. But that isn't the Lord. Look at what it says about Him. For thou... Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. What a good God. He is so benevolent. He is so kind. He is so merciful. You know, we could roll up love, mercy, tender mercies, gentle kindnesses, loving kindnesses, forgiveness, grace. We could roll them all up under good. But we're not going to be that cheap with the Lord. 
we're going to have those attributes to deal with individually by God's grace. But right now it's just good. He is benevolently kind and generously full of blessing on his creatures, especially his children. Look at Psalm 100, which we sing often. Psalm 100, and we know that we should enter into his gates in verse 4 with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. We should be thankful to him and we should bless his name. And we have identified this point before. Why should we do what verse 4 describes? Verse 5 gives us the answer and gives us the reason. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endureth to all generations. The Lord is good. And that goodness includes his mercy and a goodness includes his truth that he gives us. Look at Zechariah chapter 9. The next to last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9. This is one of those, if you like, a lot of verses to show the modern versions like the New King James or the NIV or the NASB to be wrong. You can go right here. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 17 For how great is His goodness, and how great is His beauty! Exclamation point. Corn shall make the young men cheerful, and new wine the maids. When you think of a big meal, corn the cob and wine, and the cheer that it would bring maids and young men that are in the vitality and vigor of life, that's a little tiny, short, quick, metaphorical word picture for how great is God's goodness and how great is His beauty. Because verse 6 says, The Lord their God shall save them in that day as the flock of His people, for they shall be as the stones of a crown. Those are precious stones lifted up as an ensign upon His hand. For how great is His goodness and how great is His beauty. Their versions, for how great is their goodness and how great is their beauty, referring to men's rather than God's. Thank you, Lord. We say with the same exclamation point with the prophet, how great is thy goodness. If you have been successful in any part of your life, turn with me please to Ezra chapter 7. It's because of the good God that is taking care of you. And how does the Bible describe it? Oh, brethren, the time is one thing that is not good. There is so much on this subject. Ezra chapter 7 and verse 9. For upon the first day of the first month began he to go up from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem. Now notice what it says. Ezra chapter 7 and verse 9. The last clause. According to the good hand of his God upon him. If you accomplish anything in your life, it is because... Of the good hand of God upon you. Thank you, Lord. You know, we can take a little child and help them on a bicycle with our good hand. Right? We can feed them with our good hand. But he's got his good hand on us. And it takes you places you wouldn't get otherwise. And if you think that you can get there without Him, He'll lift His hand and leave you in abject poverty, ignorance, drooling on yourself. Because without Him, we can do nothing. With Him, all things are possible. Now, how many verses do you think I can pull right now that are like that? Okay. 
we have to move on to another point. Look at Psalm 119. Some of these expressions in the Bible. This is what God wants you to know about Him. Psalm 119. Oh, when those storms come, He's still good. Because the storms are bringing rain. To give you great food the next week. He's releasing nitrogen and hydrogen into the air. He's fertilizing your lawn. He's giving you a fireworks show. People pay for that stuff. Should be thankful for every aspect of it. Right. Psalm 119, verse 68, because he's good. Thou art good and doest good. I like that verse. Thou art good and doest good. Now what if God was just good, but he didn't do good? Then he would be good at a distance. But he's good right around us. We're surrounded by good. We had that read to us from Psalm 139. He's good in front of me. He's good behind me. And with his right hand, he leads me. And his good hand is upon me. And he's on my left hand and my right hand. He's good. And he does good. Thank you, Lord, for such wonderful statements in the Word of God. Every good gift comes down from where? From above. And that's not the North Pole with Santa Claus. That's from above. That's the God of heaven. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights, in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. How good is he going to be tomorrow? Now, this is a problem with all of us. How good is he going to be tomorrow? The same as today. Let's ask a tough question. How good is he going to be a year from now? Same as today. Is today the same as with David? Is he as good with us as he was with David? No. no. He's better. But yes, he's good. You know what? For all of us, we have to ask, is he going to be good to me tomorrow? Because you know what? Our goodness depends upon our mood. To even say it, you should run me out of here. But you'd have to run out with me. That's right. That's right. Are we going to be good tomorrow because of our mood? The Lord's mood never changes. Because he's righteous and just. He's, he's immutable. I love how his attributes all come together. I want his good and his immutability together. Because he never changes. He's always going to be good. We can stand on the precipice of death. And look at that dark curtain with our last breath and say with the Lord Jesus Christ, Father, into thy hands, I commend my spirit and leap into the arms of goodness. Haven't we done that every day of our lives? Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing. And we know that to be a virtuous woman. So we we go back to Genesis chapter 2 and we read about God saying it's not, it's not, good for the man to be alone. I'll make him and help meet for him. Then we come over to Proverbs and we say, oh, yeah, we all know. Good. He made the male and female and he said, it was good. And when a male sees a female, he says, it's good. And when a female sees a male, it's good. He is good. He made man upright and he made man in a very perfect world and we corrupted it all. We corrupted the way of the Lord, and our corruption of it so offended him that he drowned the whole earth with a flood for having corrupted the way of the Lord in Genesis chapter 6. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. Forgive me for any hesitation in my flow. 
but I am having to tithe what I have, and it is the right decision to, to make. But I hope that you will consider and look for the goodness of God in everything in your life. Oh, I love this. But I love every one of these verses. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it shall be, verse 10, we we got to get 10. Deuteronomy 6, 10, it shall be, When the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of good things which thou fillest not, and wells digged which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware lest thou forget the Lord. Because it was the Lord's goodness that brought all those things to pass. And he's brought so much to pass in our lives. There were 70 cities, goodly cities, walled up to heaven. Do you know how long it takes to build a city wall? Do you know what kind of manpower and capital is required to take men off of productive enterprises to build a city wall? You don't want to have to make that investment or that call as a ruler. But those cities already had the walls built. And and Sherry and I were talking about how the Lord distributed those cities by the tribal inheritance. But once you knew which seven cities were yours to look at, you could take a little seven-city jaunt and figure out where you want your family to settle if you didn't have a tribal inheritance that limited you to a particular locale in that tribal inheritance. And then once in that city, you could drive around and say, I want a little house on a side street with two big oak trees in the front yard and a hammock stretched between the two of them. And so you would go find yourself a house with two oak trees, a hammock stretched between them, and you'd go, I wonder what's inside what if it's empty? And you so see, you open the door and it's fully decorated. There were no interior decorators in Israel. They had nothing to work with and they didn't know how to decorate because they were slaves out of Egypt. But these are the accumulated heirlooms of generation after generation of Canaanites filling those houses with good things that they didn't have to buy or pick out or have delivered. They were there, set up. Four poster bed. You're just holding your wife's hand. You know how you've lived for the last 40 years? Do you need help? How long do I need to elaborate on this little story? You're holding your wife's little hands. You've been in a very portable tent for 40 years. And you you open this solid door, and it's one of those eight-foot jewels. It's one of those eight-foot-tall, solid wood jewels that swings open on these lubed hinges. And you go in, you've got two islands in your kitchen. And the wife says, what's this sink in the island for? I've already got a double sink over there. What's this sink in the Well, I think they call that a vegetable sink. Well, what's this thing with a little sticker on it that says it's a butler pantry? What am I supposed to do with that? You say, well, let's see what the backyard's got. And you open the backyard, and there's a vineyard with 100-year-old vines churning out grapes the size of basketballs. And see, my time, I'm not a good time manager. I don't really care, except that I run out before I even tithe what I want to give you people about the goodness of God. And do you know what you're supposed to th- That is God's goodness. Amen. I want to tell you something about those people. On the first day that they were brought out of the land of Egypt after ten plagues, when they stood at the shore of the Red Sea, what did they do? Complain and blame God. But was he good? Did he keep his promises? Amen. How good was he? 
and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not. You did not go shopping or have any of that stuff brought home. I just set the table for you with your houses, your vineyards, your orchards, everything. Wells dug, cities built, infrastructure in place. Is there any civil engineer in here that can tell us the capital investment necessary for the infrastructure of a city that has to be walled up to heaven against enemies? Water supply. The infrastructure, sewage, streets, transportation, movement. Thank you, Lord. What a, what a story. You say, well, that was Israel. And who are we? That was the church of God of the Old Testament, disobedient. And we are the church of God of the New Testament, obedient this morning, if you enjoy being here. They didn't. And he warned them, don't forget me. And you know what? We have some pretty fancy houses. We would like to take that Israelite couple that I was referring to and lead them to our front door and say, how about this? I'll bet you didn't have a silver lever on a porcelain pony. We could show them so many things and you didn't have a refrigerator and you didn't have a microwave. We are so blessed. But look at what the verse says. Then beware. Since we're blessed, beware lest thou forget the Lord because it's all of his goodness that we have these things. You know, even rebellious Israel was regathered by God's goodness, and it's repeated over and over. His greatest goodness is for his faithful children that obey him. But he showed the most goodness, and we're still proving the goodness of God. Look in Luke chapter 2 and verse 14. I've referred to it once this morning. When the angels split the sky over the countryside of Judea, the angels there declared glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, good will toward men goodwill where did that come from it's god our god has a good will but that is toward his elect but why didn't the whole world fall before him because they made a choice in their hearts that they would worship and serve the creature more than the creator and so they were blinded and hardened and rewired and given over to a reprobate mind but notice what it says glory to god in the highest and on earth peace Goodwill toward men. And we want to give God glory for the things we have at home, but we want to give God glory for the things we have in the Lord Jesus Christ who sits at the right hand of Almighty God. Oh, there's so much goodness. Could God turn the evil of Joseph's brethren into good? When poor Leah was hated and Rachel was loved, could God take care of Leah? What happened in the birthing center of Bethel? For Leah, six sons, God gave her. And it says why. Because he was good toward her. And gave her six sons. Knowing God's goodness, what should it do for us? It should cause us to delight in him and to trust him and have full confidence in him because he's so good. And he's got, and he not only is good, but he does good as we read in Psalm 119. And he has good will toward us. Why would a seven-day week, where did that come from? Why is there a 24-hour day? You know, when I re- how did you read Genesis chapter 1? Are you glad that it's 12 and 12 or 15 and 9, depending on where you live on the globe, that he separates the day from the night? What if he had made it 35 and 5? Do you get tired sometimes with a 15-hour or an 18-hour day? Do you get tired? Would you get tired with successive 35-hour days and 5-hour nights? You say, well, that's nonsense. No, it isn't. It's God's goodness. He knows what you need. And boy, night comes sometimes when we need it. 
And in the morning, we're ready to go again. Another 18-hour day. Why a seven-day week with the seventh day to do nothing, according to his commandment from Sinai? Because he knows that's about the time we need for a break. And the whole world honors that. And it's not revealed by any orbit, rotation, revolution of any heavenly being or body. It is purely by the revelation of God. Why would God, through Solomon, define mercy as showing good to yourself? Proverbs 11 and verse 17. A merciful man showeth good to himself. Where does that come from? That there would be a commandment like that. The Egyptians didn't know about taking every seventh day off. The Israelites were shocked when they got to Mount Sinai and had to figure out how to pick up extra manna on the sixth day of the week. Where's all this goodness come from? The goodness of God. Thou art good and thou doest good. His goodness is throughout his law. And you know what? That's the law of the Old Testament that everyone thinks is so terrible and his goodness is just permeates through it. How dreadful and terrible is a God that requires you to spend 10% of gross income on celebrating once a year with whatsoever thy soul lusteth after? Would you please help me find the bad words in that sentence? 10% of gross once a year with your family with whatsoever thy soul lusteth after. Help me with the bad words. That's the Old Testament. You know, the thundering Mount Sinai blast furnace. God. Look at Second Chronicles chapter 30. Second Chronicles 30. What should you do because God is good? How should it affect you knowing that God is good? You can trust His goodness. You can have confidence in Him. In his benevolence towards you, instead of always thinking about him wanting to judge you, think about him wanting to be good to you, because that's what the Bible starts off with, and that's what the Bible emphasizes. And when he judges us, he says, it is his strange work. Why are you so strange that you want to focus on the strange instead of being good and focusing on the good? Why? Because it's a distortion, and I want to get you back on the road of truth. Lord, help us. Hezekiah knew about the goodness of God. He wants to celebrate a Passover, and it's too late in the year. It's supposed to be celebrated in the first month, and it's already the second month. So he goes ahead and takes counsel with his his elders and says, we're going to do it anyway. And and the the priests tell him, "We, we, we can't get sanctified in time. And we can't get the people sanctified in time because they're coming from all these other tribes that left us years ago under Rehoboam. Verse 17, 2 Chronicles 30, For there were many in the congregation that were not sanctified. Do you know what that could mean? A lightning bolt from heaven, right? Okay, let's, let's just be thinking about this lightning bolt from heaven. For there were many in the congregation that were not sanctified. Therefore the Levites had the charge of the killing of the Passovers for everyone that was not clean to sanctify them unto the Lord. For a multitude of the people, even many of Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet did they eat the Passover otherwise than it was written. Isn't that scary? We don't want to presume on God ever, but look at the words that God the Holy Spirit chose. 
But Hezekiah prayed for them saying, The good Lord, Amen. pardon everyone Amen. that prepareth his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. <laughs> this is the goodness of the Lord. Right. The goodness of the Lord says, I will have mercy and not sacrifice and defend David eating showbread because he was a little hungry. He wasn't dying. He was a little hungry. God wants you to taste and see His goodness. Doesn't it say that in Psalm 34, 8? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You should be looking around and seeing and thinking and remembering His works towards you. His good hand upon you. And I have a whole long string of verses that tell us to do it. Since you're in Second Chronicles, turn back to chapter 6 and verse 41. Second Chronicles 6, 41. Now therefore arise, O Lord God. Solomon's prayer at the consecration of the temple. Now therefore arise, O Lord God, into thy resting place, thou and the ark of thy strength. Let thy priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let thy saints rejoice in goodness. Because that's what he wants us to do, is to rejoice in his goodness. When you show goodness toward a child, or you show goodness to a friend, or you show goodness to someone, don't you want, don't you desire thanksgiving on their part? I mean, you don't do it to get the praise of men, but it's appropriate and, and it's comforting and it's, 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 the, it's the nice exchange of doing good and receiving a thank you. And the Lord wants us to rejoice in His goodness. When you pray, God's greater goodness should be the basis of your confidence. The Lord Jesus Christ would reason this way. If ye, and you know this, but it's all under the attribute of God called good. If ye, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give them that ask Him? If ye, being evil, know how to be good, and that's the extent of our goodness, it's evil goodness. But it's sanctified by the Lord, and if we did it with an honest and sincere heart to, to the Lord, it's perfect. But His goodness is so much greater. So when we pray, we should be trusting in His goodness, not in His stinginess, not in His, I've been asking too much, in His goodness. Thank Him for all the things He's already given you. That's why we did what we did on Wednesday night past. We just thanked the Lord without a single prayer request. Because we had prayer requests going into that Wednesday night. We had prayer requests when we got home, and we had prayer requests the next day, and we're going to have them today, but we wanted one service with just thanksgiving to the Lord. Because He's worthy of it. Do you know He told us to pray for His goodness? Look at Psalm 4 and verse 6, and there's many verses on this point. Psalm 4 and verse 6, There be many that say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift Thou up the light of Thy countenance upon us. Do you know that God wants you to ask Him for His goodness? Who will show us any good? Oh, I know who will show me good. Lord, lift Thou up, smile on me. Smile on me and show my enemies how good You are toward me. His goodness ought to lead us to repentance, brethren. His goodness ought not to cause us lasciviousness, nor license, nor presumption on Him, but rather repent. He has been so good. Repent because of His great goodness. Are you still going to hate the boss that doubles your pay? 
because he parks in your parking place? Thank the Lord for his goodness and repent and love him. You can be confident in affliction. David would say in this 23rd Psalm, and it's one you know, you don't have to turn to it. Surely, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me once in a while. All the days of my life. Because the Lord is my shepherd. God is good. I had fainted. Unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Psalm 27, 13. Oh, when Jacob was praying to the Lord, when Esau was coming with 400 men. Oh, before he gets to the wrestling match, his opening petition to the Lord is, I need your help, and you promised that you were going to be good to me. It's verses 11 and 12, and I'm not turning you there. It's before the wrestling match. It's the opening. I need you, and you promised you would be good to me. There is nothing wrong with you praying like that at all. You are his child. He is ready and eager to show you his goodness. And you should be ready and eager to share it with others. You know, even the four things we considered last Sunday in the second service about why bad things happen to Christians, they're all good. Amen. When you look at them right. You know, we've had mirth feasts in this church because a mirth feast is a good thing from a good God. And we do it because we want to celebrate his goodness. Last of all, are you good? God is good. We can derive great comfort and confidence and trust in Him because He's good. But are you good? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness. Do your actions show your goodness? You know, you're in Psalms. Look at Psalm 112 and verse 5. Very quickly, Psalm 112 verse 5 says this, A good man showeth favor. See how goodness is meant here? A good man showeth favor and lendeth. He's generous with his stuff. A good man showeth favor and lendeth. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Do you show that toward others? Because then it shows that you have that divine attribute in your new nature. Because by nature, men are selfish, foolish, filled with malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But if you, toward others... Ordinarily, just for the cause of Jesus Christ and because it's a commandment of His Word, love to show goodness to others, you show His nature, which means His goodness is guaranteed to you for eternity through Christ our Lord. A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. Right. He doesn't spend everything. He shows financial discipline to hold back not only for children, but children's children. These are verses that are in the Bible. Are you like your heavenly Father doing good to them that hate you? If you do good to those that do good to you, you've done nothing but what the world does. It's not true goodness at all. If you remember to do good, the Bible tells us that is your foundation against the time to come. From 1 Timothy 6.18 and Hebrews 13, 16, and other verses. I end. God is good. 
we can put supreme trust and confidence in him for life and eternity because of his goodness. We should celebrate it and praise him. He wants our lives to be filled with joy and rejoicing at the abundance of all things he's given us. And I know of no other generation in the history of the world that has the combination of blessings and goodness that we have. And then we should show goodness toward one another because he's been so good to us. And we want to lay up and store a good foundation against the time to come to lay hold of eternal life. So let's be good toward one another. Let's be generous and favorable. Lend and give and share. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. He is good and worthy of all our praise. Amen.